Thank you, Chief Justice, and may it please the court. My name is Mark Bradford with Bassford Remley, representing the appellant, James Albee. We're asking this court to reverse the two decisions below to the extent they relate to post-judgment interest and hold that FELA does not preempt application of Minnesota's post-judgment interest law. What I'd like to do this morning is start by talking about the precedent that the lower courts relied on, principally Monison, and then go into what I read to be BNSF's core argument, which is applying the post-judgment interest law in a FELA case would somehow upend FELA's uniformity goal. And I do want to address that head on. I think for context, it's important that we discuss what is substantive versus what is procedural. Because as the cases confess, it's not possible to specifically delineate a definition of those terms. But although the terms don't have fixed meanings, that doesn't mean they have no meaning at all. The terms are not meaningless, and the case law reflects that they derive meaning from the functions that they serve. What do I mean by that? Substantive law, as in FELA, defines the cause of action, what goes to prove it, what goes to defend against it, what damages are recoverable. They are the incidents of the cause of action itself, the pillars on the road to either obtaining a judgment or to defend against a judgment. And I'll give the court some examples, and these are cases that actually both parties rely on in their briefs. The United States Supreme Court's decision in Brown, which was the 1950 decision, where the court ruled that the state under FELA cannot impose an obstacle to the realization of federal rights. And in the White decision that's cited in the briefs, state law can't put the burden of proof on the plaintiff to establish contributory fault because doing so essentially puts an additional burden on the plaintiff to the realization of a federal right. Those are substantive issues that go to the core of the claim before the court. Counsel, can I just fast forward you to Kingworthy? Kenworthy? Yes. I mean, it just seems, so that's a case about um, post-verdict pre-judgment? Correct, Your Honor. Interest? Yes. So here we have post-verdict, post-judgment. I mean, it just seems to me if you follow the, the seeds that we planted in, kin, in Kinworthy, your argument is, is quite a bit tougher. So help me with sure. that. So, so Kinworthy was obviously one of the, the precedents that was re relied on below as well. And that decision, when this court um, considered that case and wrote its decision, at the time, uh, Monison had been decided in 1988, and the court was obviously constrained by the Monison decision. And there's a, there's a line in Kinworthy that basically says, we're constrained by Monison because the Monison court said any pre-judgment interest is compensatory in nature and therefore substantive, and pre-judgment interest is pre-judgment interest, re regardless if it comes before the verdict or after the verdict. What the court did not decide in Kinworthy and did not decide in Monison is the issue of post-judgment interest. And there are a number of reasons why post-judgment interest is fundamentally different than any pre-judgment interest. And it's important to remember why Monison was decided the way it was. And we pointed out two distinguishing factors in our brief, and there's actually three as I reflected on that case further. Number one is the court in Monison concluded that prejudgment interest is an element of compensatory damages. Post-judgment interest is not. Monison pointed out that at the time FILA was ratified, the common law did not allow for prejudgment interest for personal injuries. That was a fundamental point of the court's decision. We know from Stewart, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in 1916, that states can impose post-judgment interest on FELA judgments obtained in state court. The holding of that case could not have been clearer. So the state of the law back in the first few decades 
uh, of the 20th century was fundamentally different with respect to prejudgment and post-judgment interest. Yes. I'm, I'm sorry, finish your sentence. The, the, the third point I was going to make about Monison was the court uh, talked about congressional inaction. In other words, in FILA, the court modified a number of common law doctrines that existed back in 1908, like contributory fault. And it didn't amend the common law practice of not allowing prejudgment interest. Inaction actually swings in our favor here because in Stewart, as the court recognized, post-judgment interest rather is allowed on a FELA verdict, and Congress hasn't done anything to upend that practice. I'm sorry, but, Your Honor. But there is a there is a federal statute that provides yes. for post-judgment interest in the in the federal proceedings. That, that's correct, Your so Honor. So why wouldn't that control? Because in two places in that statute, Congress made very clear that the statute only applies to proceedings in federal district court. In the very first line of the statute, Congress says it applies only to judgments obtained in a district court, which is a federal district court. And then in the third part of that statute, it says, just to be clear, nothing in this statute should be construed to affect or, or apply to a judgment obtained in any other court. When, when that provision was adopted in the early 1980s, obviously Congress knew about the practice of applying post-judgment interest on state court FELA judgments, and it didn't do anything about it to say this federal statute applies um, where there's concurrent jurisdiction over federal claims in state court. It didn't mention FELA. Uh, it, to the contrary, it imposed and, and ratified express language limiting its application. So I'm guessing probably opposing counsel is going to say, oh, any court, it's referring to any federal court because Congress is legislating about federal courts. Correct. How do you respond to that? In the, in the first line of the statute? No, in C4. Um, so in C4, what the court is saying, as I read that statute, is... What Congress is th saying. This statute, the, the post-judgment interest statute, should not be interpreted to apply to any other court other than a federal district court. That's how I read that language. Is yeah. that, I, perhaps I'm not answering your question. So I, see your argument is any court means any court. It, you'd have to add the word federal to limit it to only federal courts. Um, is that your argument? Yes, exactly. I think by the plain language of the statute, and that's how it's been interpreted uh, in subsequent cases, and we've cited a number of them in our brief that have interpreted that statute as applying only to federal district courts. And I think that makes sense in light of the purpose of post-judgment interest, which is not to compensate for the underlying wrong, but it has administrative functions to forestall frivolous appeals. Counsel, yes. I guess that's where I wanted to pick up with you, and maybe this is a, a sort of a big picture, 30,000 foot question, but it, it seems to me that respondents' argument boils down to it almost doesn't matter, and maybe, I, you know, I'm sure they'll correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost doesn't matter whether we call it prejudgment interest or post-judgment interest or whether it's a component of damages or any of that, what it ultimately boils down to is the recovery, the to what, what the recovery yeah. is going to be. And that because we're in FELA land, which I think we would all agree is unique, and it seems to me um, responders are saying it's very unique if that's a term, and that, that substantive has a whole different meaning there, and that what it really boils down to is the ultimate recovery, no matter how you slice that onion. And when you come down to the, the, the ultimate recovery, for purposes of uniformity, we have to apply the federal rate. Otherwise, you have the disparate um, recovery that is present here. And so I'm wondering how you respond to that sort of big picture or if sure. you think I'm characterizing their, their position right. Because, I, you know, when I, when I got to, I think it's like somewhere on page 25 or so of, 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 of uh, respondents' brief, they basically say, whatever you call it. Yes. As I read their position, it is that they should not be required to pay $1 more in state court than they would have paid in federal court under this guise of uniformity. And what else? And why isn't that correct, given that, that FELA is unique? FELA does not require that state courts become Article Three clones for all purposes. And it's important to bear in mind, it's not uniformity for uni uniformity's sake. 
as we delved into the legislative history, and there's a, there's a case that's cited in BNSF's brief that I would commend the court to look at closely, and that's the New York Central Railroad Co. versus Winfield case. It's a 1917 case because it outlines the legislative history behind FILA. And I regret that this didn't get more attention in our reply brief, but they actually cite the House Senate report and the, uh, uh, excuse me, the House of Representatives report and the Senate report. And in, particularly, in particular, they cite the House report, which says, the statute will create uniformity throughout the union and the legal status of such employers' liability for personal injuries, instead of being subject to numerous rules, will be fixed by one set of rules. So the uniformity purpose is in the uniform application of the substantive provisions of FILA. It is not, you can't look at the net result and say because BNSF has to pay a dollar more in state court that somehow the state law is usurped. And I'll give you an example of that. Costs, okay? Now obviously this court said in Boyd, double costs are substantive. But the costs, the underlying costs that a party actually uh, incurs are not preempted. Boyd did not say that. And in state court, for example, you can recover expert costs that you can't recover in federal court. You'd have to say that now our cost rules are preempted by FILA. There, Counsel, there are two North New York Central Railroad cases from 1917 cited in Respondent's Brief. Is it, are you referring to the Tonsolito case or the Winfield case? Winfield, Your Honor. Winfield. It's 244 okay. U.S. 147. Counsel, um, in the amicus uh, brief, they assert that the application of, the, of Minnesota's post-judgment uh, interest rate does have a substantive effect because it could unduly impact a, a railroad's decision to appeal. Right. You cited the Stewart case in Correct. response. Um, and then BASF, um, BNSF made the point that the issue of federal preemption didn't arise then because uh, when Stewart was decided, there was no federal uh, post-judgment interest rate. Could you respond to that, please? Yes. So obviously, when Stewart decided, there was no federal post-judgment interest rate. And it, again, can, it's I, our can I just step in here? I mean, that's just flat wrong. I mean, it's a matter of law. In 1840s, there was a federal post-judgment interest rate passed. I, so I mean, you just look at the law. So I, I don't. I'm confused by both sides on this argument. Okay. Well, Your Honor, I wasn't aware of that statute, so I apologize if we may have misstated something in our brief. But certainly, up until 1982, um, it was common for the states, and I think actually up until the present, it was practiced. And, and the I, I just should clarify, I think it supports your position. But Yeah, right. Um, but it's always been the practice, whether it's uh, under the statute that was enacted in the 40s, whether it's the statute that was enacted in the 80s, for the... Um, state rate to apply to FILA judgments obtained in state court. That has always been the practice and it has never been upended. If we missed a statute that was in effect prior to the passage of the act, that's our omission and I apologize to the court for that. However, it doesn't change the position that we have that if Congress is free to adopt legislation that says this applies to federal claims prosecuted in state court. And the fact of the matter is that it has never done that. So if you apply the logic of Monison, which is congressional inaction in light of a state practice, we get to the same result. Counsel, let me, let me ask you, maybe this is an um, oversimplification of um, respondents' argument, and, and I'm sure they'll correct me, but, but I think in part what they're arguing here is um, the underlying judgment is determined by substantive law the amount involved here is $300,000, which is by any stretch of the imagination a substantial sum, even to um, you know, a large corporate defendant like we have here. Uh, and at the end of the day, um, you know, the difference, the actual procedural difference between um, uh, post-verdict post pre-judgment and post-verdict post-judgment is a function of you know, entering um, a line on a judgment docket. I mean, at the end of the day, um, that's, a, that, that's a substantive result. Uh, how do you deal with that argument? Well, there, there are two ways to deal with it. First of all, it's not enough to simply say 
it's a $300,000 difference and therefore it's substantive. Because where would you ever draw the line? Imagine if uh, the Minnesota post-judgment interest rate, hypothetically, was 2%, not 10%, so that the difference was $30,000, not uh, $300,000. What guidepost would the court have to determine if that is substantial enough to impede upon FILA and therefore be preempted? The, the second uh, thing I would say in response to your question, Justice Anderson, is that under our framework, under Minnesota's 54909 framework, post-judgment interest is recoverable on an award of pre-judgment interest. In other words, because pre-judgment interest is an element of damages, it's compensatory, it's substantive, Minnesota allows the procedural mechanism of getting interest on that interest. And it has always been the case that pre-judgment interest is considered, whether it's in state court, in federal court, under Erie, it has been considered a matter of substance where post-judgment interest has not. And there is, has not been a single case that has been cited to this court where an, where an appellate court has concluded that post-judgment interest is anything other than procedural. Not one case. I'd also be remiss if I didn't point out that in Boyd, which was also a BNSF case, argued in 2015, the issue there, double costs, is it substantive? And BNSF's position was yes, it is. And seven minutes and 38 seconds into the oral argument, BNSF's counsel provided the court of an example of what he thought was procedural to juxtapose double costs. And the first thing out of counsel's mouth was post-judgment interest in a FELA case, an acknowledgment that it's procedural. In Sueline versus Kinworthy, the case that we have to deal with here, counsel uh, for Sueline said in his argument, and I would, I would ask the court to go back and look at the video because it's very telling. Counsel for Sueline said, all the way up till judgment, it's procedural, but once, excuse me, substantive, but once judgment is entered, 54909 is procedural. This has always been the railroad's position until now. So the bottom line is no matter where we look, whether it's Stewart decided in 1916, whether it's the legislative history behind FILA, which very clearly shows that FILA uniformity was intended to promote the substantive rights behind the statute, whether it's the current version of the post-judgment interest statute that applies only to judgment in federal courts, whether it's federal case law like the S.A. Healy case where Judge Posner said pre-judgment interest, unlike post-judgment interest, normally is considered an element of the judgment itself that is relief on the merits. Whether it's Cutlip, Denning, Doy, Lockley, or any of the other decisions which more recently Can I ask a, a question yes. on your plain language argument? Yes. Um, is that an argument that goes to the question of whether it's procedural or substantive? Or it, does it go to the subsequent question, I guess, if we consider it substantive, does it go to deciding whether it applies? Correct. Or, uh, or is it both? I think it's the latter, Your Honor. So the, obviously there's a two-part test under Monison, which you've uh, referred to. And under Monison, even if post-judgment interest was somehow substantive, the, the second question is, does federal law still permit it in the state court proceeding? And I think it'd be hard to read that statute any other way. So I guess my question is, in that context, and this is a very kind of counterintuitive area of, uh, area of law in a sense, but once we decide it's substantive, then are we actually viewing it as, as if the state court is for substantive issues sitting as a federal court? It, if that, it just seems like the plain language interpretation is a procedural interpretation of what we've already considered a substantive law if that question makes uh, any sense. I have to confess, Your Honor, I got lost in your question. Okay, that's fine. Um, okay. Uh, <laughs> the the two-part Monison test, first you look to federal law to determine if something is substantive or procedural. So we look at federal case law relating to post-judgment interest. We've cited, obviously, the Stewart decision, which is a U.S. Supreme Court interpretation. And then we've cited cases in the Erie context. And that, that's not to say that Erie 
governs the analysis here. I think that was made clear in Boyd. It doesn't. But there's really no other source of federal cases to which you could look to determine whether they have considered post-judgment interest procedural or substantive. Erie is, is what we have. To get to your question, which I think is, even if it's somehow substantive given the amount, if you can just look at the amount and say it's substantive, does, is, does federal law allow application of the post-judgment interest rate in state court proceedings notwithstanding? And that's when we look to the actual statute, which is how can the argument be made that the court is required, a state court is required to apply a federal statute when the federal legislature that enacted FELA has disclaimed application of that statute to a state court proceeding. It's a completely incongruous position that the railroad is taking. Oh, Council, under that, under that theory, then, it, what, what I'm hearing you say, then, it does not matter that, as respondents say, um, the federal law conflicts with the state law. Because if you just look at whether or not they conflict, they clearly do. And respondent makes, makes that point, as well as, nor does it matter, at least in their theory, um, that just because there is a federal law and, and uh, out there, that's irrelevant. Yes. Or state law, that's irrelevant. Well, the answer is yes, that's, that's correct. And I'll give the court uh, an additional uh, analogy, if you will, to the um, Minneapolis and St. Louis Railroad versus Bombolis case, which is actually cited in Monison. Okay? It's B-O-M-B-O-L-I-S, which is a 1916 case. And the railroad there was protesting a verdict and a judgment that was entered against it under... Minnesota law, because Minnesota law at the time and now does not require a unanimous verdict. And the argument was, well, because this is a FELA case, you have to apply Article 7 of the U.S. Constitution, which requires a unanimous jury verdict. So therefore, the railroad shouldn't have liability. And the court in Bombalus said, no, the, the six-seventh rule that we have in Minnesota doesn't affect any substantive FELA rights. And just because there is Article 7, which conflicts with Minnesota law, as long as that conflict does not affect any of the underlying federal substantive FELA rights, the court is well within its rights to apply its own procedural rule. See, and this gets to my question that I asked before, because in Bombalus, they determined it was a procedural right. They didn't get to the second inquiry. Correct. And so there they're saying this is a procedural right, so procedural law applies. So I'm not sure that that answers the question of if it's actually a substantive right, then are you looking at whether it's the, you apply the, for substantive issues, you apply it as if it's a federal, if the state court is sitting as a federal law. So I don't think it answers that question. And there's another case from 1916 from that era where it basically says for substantive rules, you administer the cases if you're a federal court. Right. So that, that's kind of what my earlier question was getting at. And the two-step approach uh, I think Monison has been identified for, it hasn't always been consistently applied in the earlier cases, right? The, the two-step approach was not necessarily expressed in some of the cases like uh, White and, and Bombalus, but they got to the same place, whether the court essentially looks at does the state rule or procedure at issue impede, impact, expand, enlarge, contract some substantive right in FILA. And you can read all of the pages in the amicus briefs. You can read all of the pages in BNSF's briefs. They never identify what substantive right in FILA is impacted. Yes, sir. Would you say your, your position in part, at least for this case, is that once judgment is entered, the FILA recovery is set? The yes. FILA substantive rights are set, and then following that, it's procedural. Correct. And that's, if you boil it down, kind of? You're absolutely right, Your Honor. The, the judgment is the embodiment of the litigation of the substantive FELA rights. Every damage, every compensatory damage is embodied in that judgment. And what's important about that is the $1.6 million judgment that was entered against BNSF, there's no argument that that judgment would have been different had the case been litigated in federal court. But, but isn't and, the, isn't the, um, couldn't you also make that same statement about the verdict itself? In other words, 
um, the verdict is ultimately, uh, that's, that's the end of the substantive part of the case. And if, if that's true, then didn't this court make a mistake in Kinworthy? Uh, at least arguably, it's not the end of the substantive case, and here's why. After a verdict is entered, there are set-offs that parties are entitled to under FILA uh, that could change the amount of the judgment that is ultimately entered against the railroad. So there are still defenses, so to speak, that apply to the damages award after the verdict is entered that's ultimately embodied in the judgment. The, the, may I um, have 30 seconds to just yes, make please. one comment? I do think it's important that the court look at footnote three in Kinworthy because it talks about this uni uniformity issue, which is sort of at the core of BNSF's argument. And footnote three in Kinworthy says, Congress enacted FILA to achieve national uniformity, and that uniformity is achieved when federal substantive law governs the adjudication of FILA claims in state courts. And to get back to J Justice Thiessen's comment, once judgment is entered, the adjudication of FILA rights is at an end. And now it's simply a matter of enforcing the judgment. Thank, Thank you, you Counsel. You have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Hansen. May it please the court, counsel. My name is Sam Hansen. With me at counsel table is Leah Bumsma. We represent BNSF Railway. We ask this court to affirm both the district court and the court of appeals in its decision that the federal interest rate preempts the state interest rate in FELA cases because the application of the state rate, which would have a, make a substantial portion of the potential liability of the railroad and federal policy under FELA is that any a law that imposes a substantial part of the potential liability should be governed by federal law. The framework for this case has already been established, I think, in Kenworthy and Boyd taken together and their interpretation of what I call Manesson, but it's probably my Norwegian <laughs> accent. No, my wife is from Pennsylvania. It is Manesson. You are correct. <laughs> I, got, I, got one, I got one point right. Good. Uh, those two cases interpreted Manesson to, to focus not on how you might classify something as procedural or substantive for other purposes, not on how they might function differently one from the other, but rather what was their effect on the potential liability of the railroad in, in light of the uniform policy that railroad liability should be the same no matter where the venue. And, and there were multiple venues that were available here. The, those two cases already rejected the other state decisions that council just recited for you. They specifically rejected uh, Lockley, Denning, Jacobs, and Weber, and ruled to the contrary of those decisions. That was well, in, in fairness, I mean, those are two of those cases were actually post-verdict pre-judgment cases, uh, but two of them all, were post. They all came down on. on but two of them were post. No, two of them were post-judgment yes. cases. Yes. And so the two, the Lockley and the other case, uh, weren't on point for the decision that was made in in Kinworthy. In Kinworthy, no. But I think Kinworthy rejected the rationale of those. Well, decisions. it seems to me what Kinworthy said was Monison says pre-judgment interest. This is prejudgment interest, and so we're stuck. Whereas, as other counsel points out, Stewart says post-judgment interest, or at least post-judgment mechanisms, are procedural. So wouldn't the, wouldn't the rationale of Kinworthy say we need to follow what the Supreme Court has said on these issues in the past and just follow Stewart here? I respectfully disagree with your statement that Stewart addressed this substantive procedural dichotomy. It did not. But they determined that the, that the post-judgment mechanisms, and it had already been decided prior to Stewart that we need to determine whether it's procedural or substantive in Molnau or whatever, not, probably not Molnau, but something like that. Um, 
So in 1916, that, that had already been made, and then the Stewart Court basically said, because this is after the verdict, and they're just trying to, to address how the appeals are handled, that that kind of post-judgment mechanism, state law applies, so it's procedural. I think Stewart was more based on the fact that for FELA purposes, there had been no applicable federal interest rate. I understand your, uh, your Honor's question earlier about the pre-existing federal rate, but it had never been applied in FELA. And Stewart determined that in the absence of any federal rate ever having been applied in FELA, that the state rate, it would defer to the state rate. Congress in 1948 extended that deference and, and passed a law saying we'll incorporate in FELA, well, in, in, in the federal rate, not just FELA, but they did apply it to FELA, See, and this is the state question. rates. But then in 1982, it specifically struck that language, that deference to the state rate, and it concluded that there would be a federal rate and, and therefore created, at least for the first time in a FELA context, a federal rate that was a market-based rate measuring the cost of money. And so this that actually so in 1982 and does this would this change I mean would this change your analysis if this case arose in 1983 where the federal market rate was 18% and the state rate no. would have been 10%. And so you would have been paying more post judgment interest in 1983, right? The railroad does that make a difference in the outcome of this case? There, there are theoretical time periods where there would have been the reverse, yes. But that's not what we have today. And, but would that make a difference I, I think the, the, to you? I mean, in terms of the practical impact. I mean, your argument is really about the practical impact of this, right. This, 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 right? And so if the practical impact is that the railroads, railroad would actually be paying lower post-judgment interest, does that change the, your position on this? I, I don't think it does from this perspective. I think what Congress intended in 1982 was to create a market-based rate so that it would measure the cost of money in the interval. Whatever that market-based rate was, whether it was higher or lower than a state rate, it would have a significant impact on the ultimate liability, either up or down, for the railroad. And their, their desire to have uniformity was to have the liability be the same and not be, not be at the whim of the choice of your venue. And, and that's the way it works out under the current so, circumstances. So, counsel, let's take opposing counsel's uh, uh, discussion of costs. Um, are costs procedural or substantive? Would, would we have to follow, in a FELA case, the federal cost rule? The actual costs, according to Boyd, uh, I guess didn't decide. Boyd decided, yeah, Boyd that, didn't decide that. that a penalty cost, something more than what your actual cost is, uh, is preempted, uh, is substantive. Comparably here, the Minnesota interest rate obviously is not the cost of money. It is a penalty uh, imposition well above the cost of money. I appreciate your point on that, Council. What I'm trying to do is find out what the rule of law is as to when something is preempted and when it's not. So in Minnesota, you get costs, as he pointed out, you get costs for expert fees. Federal, apparently, you don't. Um, so is that recoverable in state court? Are those expert costs recoverable in state court, or is it preempted? I think under the Manesson and the Kenworthy and Boyd interpretation of Manesson, it would depend on its effect on the liability of the railroad. So is, if it's it, a is big, it a major it's a big, component big or not? So if it's a big difference, then it's not recoverable. If it's a small difference, it might be? Is there some de minimis test you're urging here? Uh, I think it, it doesn't vary case by case. It's not case specific. I don't think Boyd is case specific or Kenworthy is. I think it depends on the potential liability. In other words, Kenworthy actually, uh, the post-verdict pre-judgment interest was not a substantial factor. It was about 2% of the recovery. But it was applying a uniform law because the use of uh, uh, post-verdict pre-judgment interest could be a substantial factor, and that was the ana analysis that got you to the to the impact that would make preemption applicable. So let's say we've got a in state court we've got a filing fee for an appeal 
of $2,000, and let's say in federal court it's $500. Is the uh, filing fee for appeal preempted by FILA? I don't think it gets into that granular uh, uh, an area. I mean, it, so it's got to be technically more than, you would regard that as a procedural difference and, and a local rule. And if it doesn't amount to a, uh, a substantial factor creating a substantial disparity in the railroad liability, depending on where you brought the action, then but, preemption is not invoked. But counsel, that that seems to bring up the problem that Mr. Bradford was talking about, which is where do you draw that line? And I guess that's that's a part of Justice Lilhaug's questions as well. Where is that line? That doesn't seem to me to be a test, and and we've got to write a rule or adopt a rule right. here, and I'm not <clears throat> sure what that is. And I guess my second part of that would be what I'm hearing, I guess my concern with your argument is that it seems to almost eviscerate any distinction between procedural or substantive that we've relied on for eons, hundreds of years. Because now, at least as, my, as I understand your argument, it's about the total recovery what, and, and the significance of that recovery, as opposed to, as Mr. Bradford was saying, whether or not um, this interest rate affects any substantive right. Um, so I guess help me with those two things, like where the book ends in, in, any, in what we would adopt, any rule that we would adopt, and are you in essence saying that that procedural substantive distinction that we've, we've relied on for hundreds of years is, is irrelevant almost in FELA cases? I think it is. I think the rules that you have stated in Kenworthy and Boyd state the rule of law that if the state law that is being questioned under a preemption analysis would have a substantial impact on the railroad liability in a FELA case, then it is preempted and the federal law applies if you compare the two. I think that is the rule. And I think in Boyd, I think you made it particularly clear that you're not bound by how we define substantive and procedural in other aspects or how the state court might define it. Uh, you, you look at this impact test, not a classification so, but test. But Mr. Hanson, under that theory, take Mr. Bradford's example. What if this, uh, the state interest rate were 2% instead of 10%? So that we're talking about substantially less. Then is that, <clears throat> is that a, a, a significant enough impact on the railroad's liability? The preemption of FELA would have to be on a national basis. So if one individual states had, a, had the same interest rate as the federal rate, you wouldn't have the conflict. On the other hand, uh, as we have shown, all of the states in this region have interest rates that are well above the federal rate, and so it does have that impact. So the case before you today involves an interest rate that is 20 times the federal rate, and that's a substantial impact. Council, for purposes of your test, the, the, the test that you're advocating, the substantial impact, um, I guess it doesn't really matter which way it goes. I mean, it could be a substantial impact in favor of the railroad, or it could be a substantial impact in favor of the plaintiff. I, I mean, it doesn't really matter which way it goes, I suppose, is your I, argument. I think that's true. It, works, it worth in both, works in both directions, and at the time that the 1982 amendments were made to Section 1961. It did work in the opposite direction. There had been no cases deciding the preemption issue in that context. Uh, Mr. Hanson, you Council, um, you know, the rule about substantial impact, well, I was impressed with um, opposing counsel's reference to the Bombalis case. Because that seems to me to really have an impact if you, if you can have a verdict by fewer than unanimous jury, um, and yet the United States Supreme Court did not find that that was preempted. I mean, that seems to me to be a lot greater than post-judgment interest. It's a lot more indirect impact than the impact of applying an interest rate that, 20, that is 20 times higher than the federal. In other words, could it have some impact? Yes, it could. It's an indirect impact. You don't know how that's going to play out. Council, um, here's the real problem I've got with um, the railroad's position. Whether it's procedural or substantive, the question of post-judgment interest, 
I'm looking at 28 U.S.C. 1961 C4, and it says, this section shall not be construed to affect the interest on any judgment of any court not specified in this section. Plain language seems to say 1961 doesn't touch post-judgment rates in state courts. Why does it, what's the alternative interpretation that it, that it would mean it doesn't say that? The statute means that, that it does not apply directly to state courts. It only applies to them if they are preempted and required to apply, apply federal law as though sitting by a federal court. Yeah, but it doesn't say that. It says it, it shall not be construed <clears throat> to effect. It doesn't say effect directly, effect indirectly, just effect. And it refers to any judgment, which should presumably include FELA judgments, in any court, which should presumably include state courts. Why isn't that the most natural and plain language reading of 1961 C4? Because it wasn't the reading given in Manesson. Manesson applied section 1961 to a state court proceeding in Pennsylvania. It wasn't the reading given in Kinworthy. Kinworthy applied section 1961 to a state court proceeding in Minnesota. Both of those cases, though implicitly they didn't feel they had to express apparently the rationale, determined that when you preempt state law, then a state court is sitting as though it were sitting as a federal court. Yeah, but 1961 is, well, does 1961 include pre-judgment interest? It does not. And that's, what Manesson, holding and that's what Manesson and Kenworthy were about. So who, who has interpreted C4 to say that it, it's not talking about any judgment, including FILA, in any court, including state courts. Do you have any precedent supporting your position? Manesson and Kinworthy. In other words, let me back up a little bit. 1961 has two parts. It tells you when interest accrues post-judgment. It tells you what the interest rate is. Right. This court in Kinworthy decided that the first part was preempted by federal law. Federal law preempted the state statute, which has those same two parts. When does it accrue and what is the rate? That rationale, though not yet applied to, a, to a, a case involving the interest rate, is the same rationale. It would be incongruous to say that this court in Kinworthy said that part one of the Minnesota statute does not apply in a FELA case, but part two would, even though the rationale is exactly the same. They each have a substantial impact on the potential liability of the railroad. But counsel, that, that logic falls apart, it seems to me, if you look at something beyond substantial impact on the railroad. If you look at our traditional notions of procedural, what's procedural and what's substantive, what affects simply the processes of the court versus substantive rights. Um, and so I guess I'm asking, are you suggesting that we ignore that traditional distinction? I'm suggesting that you do, yes, and in Boyd, you said that very thing. You said whatever, however states traditionally characterize substantive and procedure does not apply to FILA. FILA has a life of its own. It stands apart, and it's because of this overriding policy of, of national uniformity that a railroad's liability should be the same wherever it is sued around the country and it shouldn't with be substantially impacted or made different or disparate because of the venue choice. With respect so had to this that, case been brought in federal court here or in, in three other states where it could have been brought in either state or federal court, in those federal courts, the state interest rate would not have applied, the federal rate Mr. would Hansen, have applied. How then would you respond, Mr. Bradford points us to footnote three in Kenworthy that talks about what we meant when we were talking about uh, national uniformity. And that footnote does seem to say that that uniformity is achieved when federal substantive law governs the adjudication of FELA claims. And this isn't about adjudication now at this point. I think the word was liability in that footnote, is it not? That there should be uniform liability? I don't have the case here in front of me. Liability That's is, correct, is yeah. the very concept we're talking about. The potential liability here of the railroad is $300,000 greater if the state statute is applied than if the federal is Your applied. liability was determined 
as a result of the of the judgment, not as a result of of the well, interest rates. That's a circular statement, I think, Your Honor. I think li the term liability, uh, and sometimes it's used interchangeably with the amount of the recovery, the plaintiff's recovery, refers to what the railroad ultimately has to pay to the plaintiff. Yeah. And I suppose liability is very much at issue on appeal. That's the reason you take an appeal, is because you want to litigate your liability. Exactly. But I, so, but the substantive liability, the liability under FILA, <laughs> right, is defined well, when the judgment is entered. So that's what you're, that's that. the, I mean, FILA's about providing compensation to an injured worker. And when judgment is entered, the court and the jury have decided finally that this is what compensation is owed by the railroad to this injured worker. That makes him substantively whole. And the post-judgment interest is just kind of the mechanism that goes on after that. So why is the opposing counsel wrong that liability is defined for substantive FELA purposes, which is what the focus of our inquiry is, when judgment is entered? Why is that not right? It simply doesn't follow from your decisions in Kenworthy and Boyd or from Manesson, because in, in those cases... Post-judgment interest is not that. And in Kenworthy, they but, basically said, we have to follow Manesson, because they said pre-judgment interest is what is what is covered and this is prejudgment interest uh, and Boyd is affecting something that happens prejudgment it, it talks about penalties for decisions made during the course of a trial so I, I I'm, I'm not I'm not following your distinction Boyd said that Manesson wasn't limited to determining whether it was part of damages or not Boyd uh, didn't address an element of the feel a liability cause of action it, it, it addressed costs. So your decision in Boyd takes I, I you away. I think that that's incorrect because what, what the double liability for costs is saying you didn't settle the case early enough. That's why you get the double liability for costs. So, the, so it clearly impacts how you would litigate a case and how you would get to the ultimate liability pre-judgment. You wouldn't get that double costs unless you made, if, if you made a different decision in terms of how you settled the case, right? I mean, that's, that's what the essence of that case is about. Well, the essence, I believe, of Boyd is that uh, it imposed a penalty on the railroad for a cost that wasn't actually incurred by the plaintiff. And that penalty had a substantial impact on the railroad's liability, ultimate liability, and, and that therefore was preempted. And it distinguished, or, or it, made clear that Manesson wasn't limited to a damage, which would be more of a causal cause of action element, wasn't limited to that. It really was, it was really uh, addressing the impact on the railroad's liability under the uniformity concept. Council, so why, why do, oh, just one more quick, yeah, sure. so why do we even care about procedural versus substantive distinction? I mean, it seems like there's essentially no procedural law that if there's any difference between federal and state law, federal law governs. So why, why do we even have this construct of making this well, analysis? I, I think that's what many of the comment, commentators have said, that in the FILA context, the preemption is so expansive that what is substantive is unlike what you would say was substantive in a different context, and, in, and what is procedural is de minimis. That's but what the commentators have, say. But we've said in our case, and the Supreme Court says that's important. So there has to be some reason for it, right? Something I'm sorry. To there has to be some reason that we do this procedural substantive analysis because we've been told by the Supreme Court and we ourselves have said we need to do this. Sure. So no, what it, is it? it is the substantive procedure is the framework for determining preemption, but it's, it, it doesn't use the traditional concept. It refers to a different substantive uh, category when you're dealing with FILA. Mr. Hanson, Counsel. would you agree that, would do you agree with Mr. Bradford that if we ruled in your client's favor, we would be the first court to hold that uh, post-judgment interest is substantive? Because it doesn't sound like there's anybody else that's done that. We haven't, we haven't cited a case that uh, reaches that result, but, but 
you have already decided not to follow the cases that have reached a contrary result. You decided in Kenworthy to reject the rationale of those, those four cases. Those were prejudgment cases, right? Those were pre. Pardon? Those were prejudgment interest cases. They were, but but you rejected the rationale of those cases, and many of those cases, including two that weren't mentioned in Kenworthy, Cutlip and Doy, based their decision on the fact that Section uh, 1961 of the Federal Act does not apply to state court. And you and Kenworthy, I think, rejected that concept. You applied 1961 to a state court proceeding. That's a narrow and un unsupported, inappropriate Counsel, reading of the federal Counsel, statute in a preemption where in Kenworth, context. Where in Kenworthy did we apply 1961? I did a quick word search, and 1961 doesn't even show up in Kenworthy, or in Manesson for that matter, because they're pre-judgment cases. They're not post-judgment cases. So how, how did we interpret 1961 in Kenworthy? Because 1961 tells you when interest accrues. That's the first part. It accrues on the entry of a final judgment. Judgment. Both Manesson and Kenworthy determined that because the federal uh, law doesn't allow for prejudgment interest but only allows interest once the judgment has been entered, uh, any any state court prejudgment interest would be preempted. Is it your position that implicitly in Manesson and Kenworthy, the U.S. Supreme Court and we interpreted C4 of 1961? I think you necessarily had to or you wouldn't have been able to reach the decision you did. Okay. If there are no further questions, uh, we would ask that you affirm the District Court and the Court of Appeals. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Bradford, you have 10 minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, just four quick points. Justice Thiessen, I wanted to respond to your uh, fundamental question, which is why do we do this procedural substantive dance? Why does it matter? And it matters because of federalism. I mean, that's what's at bottom here. The U.S. Congress has said what the substantive rights are in FELA. And the case law embodies the concept that states can't add or detract from that substantive law in the name of procedure. For example, by imposing a clear and convincing evidence standard on the plaintiff, by taking away the right to a jury trial. Those are the reasons why the what court What about has, discouraging the right to take an appeal? Well, this sort of gets back to the Stewart question, which is, and in Stewart it was also a 10% interest rate, and the court said as long as the states afford the railroad or the aggrieved party a right to appeal, that the states can properly impose a 10% interest rate under state law. That was, that was Stewart. Could there be a hypothetical situation where the interest rate were so high, 100%, 200%, that you have some due process concerns? Potentially. But this is not that case. This is the same interest rate that was considered in Stewart. But your argument, even in that context, the 200%, your argument would be the same. You would still say the state law would apply, and then you'd have to litigate the constitutional question. Correct. The second thing I wanted to point out is the, the parties competing tests, because as I understand the test that the railroad is asking you to apply is if anything has a substantive effect on the railroad's potential liability, which they read as the amount that they have to pay at the end of the day, uh, it is preempted by federal law. We've seen that that's already, that that's an almost impossible standard to apply because when pressed about questions like costs, uh, there's not a delineation that the railroad can draw between what is substantive and what is procedural when it comes to the amount. You can think of other examples outside of costs, state court sanctioning authority, okay? So states derive their sanctioning authority from rules, from decisions, from the Constitution. What if state court sanctioning authority is different? Do state courts now have to wear a federal hat? It's an impossible test but to counsel, apply. That seems to me to be much different than this. I mean, if, if a court is going to sanction a litigant for bad behavior, the money may or may not go to opposing counsel. It might go into the court. So it doesn't impact liability at all in the same way that an interest rate does. But if, but if I understand the railroad's argument, if they have to pay at the end of the day, to, let's assume the sanctions go to the plaintiff. 
if they have to pay at the end of the day more money than they would had this case been venued in federal court, it is per se substantive. But let me just tell you what's, what's troubling to me about this case, and that's the form shopping aspect of it. I mean, Congress, the goal in FILA was to have national uniformity. I think you will agree with that. So, so how does, is there any impact on form shopping here where a plaintiff could say, well, the interest rate in Minnesota is 15% and the interest rate in South Dakota is 2%, so I'm going to file my lawsuit in Minnesota. I mean, that's what I'm concerned about here, the yeah. uniformity, the absence of it. Right, and, and again, it, it's, it's important to note what uniformity is that we're talking about here and the source of the uniformity goal in FILA. Because the legislative history and the cases applying FILA have said that uniformity deals with the liability for the underlying personal injuries that give rise to the lawsuit. They should be judged by the same standard, the same compensatory damages should apply, the same defenses should apply. That is the federal law that is embodied in FILA. What is the cause of action? What gives rise to it? What defenses are available? Post-judgment interest is fundamentally different, and this gets back to one of the problems with the railroad's test. They use the word liability, and that liability has to be uniform. But it's important to remember, Your Honor, that at the time the judgment is entered, FILA liability has been determined and is now embodied in a judgment. Had they paid the judgment when it was entered, they would pay the exact same amount in state court versus federal court. Post-judgment interest is not compensation for the underlying injury. But it's isn't your rule, me, your isn't your, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but isn't, doesn't your rule disincent parties from taking appeals? I, that's the purpose of post-judgment interest. One of the purposes of post-judgment interest is to preclude frivolous appeals. Doesn't, doesn't that make sense then that if, if that's what's at issue, the right to take an appeal, that everybody's right to take an appeal should be subject to the same standards? Well, the, first of all, the railroad hasn't shown that this statute has any substantive effect on a party's decision to appeal or not to appeal. That, but again, that's well, Stewart. And again, that's, well, and that gets back to the initial point I made, which is the, the point in Stewart, I mean, this issue was in front of the court, and, and the U.S. Supreme Court blessed the 10% interest uh, statute, state statute in a FILA case, and expressly held that as long as the state court provides some appellate mechanism, uh, the well, statute... Well, opposing counsel tells us that the reason... That's not significant is that at the time there was no FILA applicable interest rate statute. Um, how do you respond to that? Right, and I, I have to confess I had a hard time following the, the argument with respect to Section 1961 because, um, as, as Justice Lillehaug pointed out, in none of the Manesson, pardon me for um, mispronouncing it when I was up here the first time, in Manesson and Kinworthy, the statute was not at issue because it deals, the statute deals only with post-judgment interest. And in C4 expressly points out that it applies only to federal court proceedings. It has, the, the only bearing it has on the, uh, this appeal is to essentially bolster our position that the well, statute I, I think doesn't what, I think what counsel, the point counsel was making, and I run the risk of misinterpreting it, but, but I'm gonna say it anyway, but I think the point counsel was making was that the 10% um, referenced in Stewart occurs in a vacuum that things change with the adoption of the FILA-specific statute. And but just, just to, we just need to clarify the record on this. That exact language that was recodified in 1948 existed in 1848. It's been federal law, statutory law, for 100 years before 1948. So it existed when FILA was adopted. So uh, when FILA was adopted, if I understand you, Justice Thiessen, there was a statute that basically said post-judgment interest accrues under state law. In, it, okay, so I mean, I believe that just further supports our position that at the time FILA was enacted, if you look at Manesson, uh, which looks at what's the state of the law when this federal statute was enacted, and if that's the case, and I have no reason to dispute you, that would just further support our position that Congress knew about this practice and intentionally didn't do anything about it, which would be the same in 1982 when it uh, drafted the current version of the statute. It obviously knew what the long-standing practice was under either common law or through statute, 
And not only did it not upend that practice, it expressly said in the statute, we are intentionally not upending that practice. The last thing I wanted to point out was there, there was an attempt to analogize Boyd, sort of the double costs in Boyd, to the uh, prejudgment interest statute and to say essentially that what the federal rate does is sort of recognize the real loss of use of money and the 10% rate is, is somewhat punitive and I, I don't think that's entirely uh, accurate. Uh, there's nothing in the legislative history that, that I could find in 54909 to suggest that the 10% rate is somehow punitive. In fact, as this court's- It isn't that the legislature intended it to be punitive at the time that it was adopted. I mean, at the time it was adopted, that 10% interest rate was probably competitive with, uh, at least judging from what my mobile home loan was in 1979 right. or so, I, I think it probably was competitive. So the question is, but what happens in the, inter the years that follow? And I think that's the argument. Yeah, and my, my point is simply it double costs the, the rule when it was adopted. There was, uh, there was history behind that rule to, to essentially say it is a sanction for not settling. I mean, it's, it's not related to any costs actually incurred. And post-judgment interest is, is very different. Post-judgment interest, again, does not compensate for the underlying injury. It compensates a plaintiff because the railroad is now holding something that the law has determined rightfully belongs to the plaintiff. It, it is holding a judgment and it has made, intentional or not, a decision not to pay that money that has been judicially determined to be owed to the plaintiff. That is the function of post-judgment interest. And there is no substantive right that is affected by applying the post-judgment interest rate in this case. Thank you, Your Honors, for your time and attention. Thank you, Counsel. Thanks to both Counsel for the help that you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course.